reading from the New Testament. It's from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him with dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the past couple of months, we have been looking at a series called Life in the Spirit, and basically looking at different topics in the New Testament that instruct us and inform our hearts uh, as to being followers of Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple? And how do we reorient and recalibrate not only our hearts, but really our lives so that we live in obedience to our Lord and Savior Christ? And tonight we're going to look at the subject of hospitality. Now, let me say from the very beginning that this is a gift, and some of you are very good at it, but for the rest of us, you're not off the hook so easily. It's also a command, a calling for all of us to be hospitable as Christ is hospitable to us. And so as we think about what it means to be a community, I think we do this really well, but for us to take it to the next level to extend grace and kindness to this city, starting right here in this room with the people who may look differently than you, think differently than you, and believe differently than you, and to reach out to them as Christ does to us. I think that is what Christ is calling us to. Well, before we dive in, let's pray, and uh, we'll look at the Word. God, we give you thanks that you give us the Your word, which is life unto us. And we ask now that you would help us to listen with open hearts, with faith, so that your word would be with effect, and that you would teach us as your people to live in obedience to your word. In Christ's name, amen. 
Anyone seen the 1987 Danish film, Bobbit's Feast? Anyone? Oh, that's pretty good, okay. I thought I'd be like the only one with, you know, Elder Bob Baldwin, right? <laughs> you know, Bob, you're such a likable guy. <laughs> it's the first Danish film to win the Academy Award. And uh, basically, it's a story about two Protestant sisters, Martine and Philippa, who welcome a French refugee named Bobbitt. And uh, one day she appears out of the blue with a note in hand, basically from a mutual friend saying, hey, we recommend her uh, to be your housekeeper. Now, obviously, the two sisters have no money, uh, but then she decides to work for free, so they welcome her in. And for 14 years, 14 years, she works as a cook, and they know nothing about her. The only thing she retained from her previous life is a lottery ticket uh, that a friend renewed every year for her. And one day, she wins. Instead of using the money to return to her uh, previous life in Paris, she decides to prepare a feast. And that's an understatement. A luxurious feast, really a masterpiece, a work of art for the sisters and their small congregation in honor of their late pastor. And it's funny how these Protestants, you know, they gather together and basically they make a pact. They say, look, we're going to go to this dinner, but we're not going to enjoy it. Because if we enjoy it too much, then it might become sin. <laughs> so you, you see them in the beginning of the meal, trying not to get all worked up, okay? They are fighting the urge to celebrate and to give thanks and to speak praise for this work of art. Instead, they're like, oh, this is pretty good. I don't know if I'd order it again, but it's, it's all right. I mean, it's really pathetic, but over the course of the meal and the night, something happens. Their heart changes. Relationships form. Reconciliation happens. Love and romance is rekindled. They start singing and dancing. And I remember watching this many years ago thinking, wow, that is the transformative power of hospitality. When we open up our heart and our home to free up our schedule and even our wallet, to welcome, to invite, to embrace those who are even different from us, we extend God's kindness and demonstrate his love to them. Hospitality, as you know, is not just this perfect meal that you see on glossy magazine covers. No, it's when you, open, you, when you keep uh, the door open for someone. You offer to babysit for free or even for money. Like, it's okay. Help someone move, buy someone a meal, or greet someone sitting next to you right here during worship. All of these things are act of kindness, which is essentially hospitality. And I would say hospitality is nothing other than love in action. When we take what's in our hearts and we apply it to other people, that's what hospitality is. And Jesus wants us to be a hospitable community that not only speaks to the riches of the gospel, 
but demonstrates it through humble and generous service even to the least of these. So let's take a look at two things about hospitality tonight. First, the model of hospitality. The model of hospitality. The Pharisees have Jesus right where they want him. Sabbath, check. A sick man, check. A group of Pharisees, check. The Pharisees then take front row seats with popcorn in hand in order to catch Jesus violating the law. It says that they were actually scrutinizing, carefully watching Jesus' every move. And Jesus, seeing what's going on, it says, responds with a question. Is it lawful to heal uh, on Sabbath or not? Now, at this point, if the Pharisees said yes, then they would have been guilty of compromising their convictions. But if they said no, then they would have come across as callous and inhumane. So they do what they usually do with Jesus. They just stand there sheepishly, quiet. Then Jesus follows up with another question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, would not immediately pull him out? Again, the Pharisees do what they do best. They stand there silently looking at one another to see if anyone will say anything. And of course they don't. Just like that, the tables have turned, and instead of trapping Jesus, they fell into their own trap. You know, every time I read these accounts, I think of Wiley Coyote. Do you guys remember him? Right? From the Roadrunner? Like, every time I, I read these accounts, I'm like, aren't they ever going to figure this out? That no matter how elaborate the scheme, eventually at the end, they're going to fall into it. The text says the man suffered from dropsy. It's an abnormal swelling of the body and uh, it really symptomatic of a deeper issue, such as kidney or heart disease. And it's ironic that this man who stands there in perhaps the middle of the room represents really the Pharisees as a whole because the Pharisees suffer from spiritual dropsy too an abnormal swelling of their pride, symptomatic of something much deeper called sin. And you see their pride manifest in two different ways. First, pride devalues others. You see, when there's no love in us, and we're so caught up in our own selves, we begin to look at other people either as an obstacle to overcome or as objects to abuse. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They took advantage of this man suffering, terminal illness, suffering, and used him as bait. And they didn't love God and honor him, but they tried to trap him. But not only that, secondly, pride overvalues self. There is a change of scenery between verses 6 and 7. And, and the more I think about this passage, the harder it is to wrap my head around What's going on here? The Pharisees plot to trap Jesus. Didn't work out. And instead they stand there silently looking sheepish and dumb. And before long they're jockeying now for seats 
of honor. Like, if you try to see that thing play out, I think you'd be confused too. How do you go from plotting something evil against Jesus and then fighting for the best seat in the house? I think the ugly truth is that we're all guilty. You see, pride is in all of us. We play the same game, but with different rules, don't we? We often look to others to see if we can gain anything from them. If we could take advantage of them or the situation, to use them, perhaps, to gain a bigger stage, a bigger platform, career and otherwise. We're guilty of the same thing. And yet Jesus does something spectacular. He does not simply walk out the house, slamming the door behind them to say, I'm never coming back. Rather, he models hospitality by not only healing this man with dropsy, but now leaning into the Pharisees who tried to trap him. And Jesus does this in two ways. First, through his presence. Jesus comes to dine with these people. He offers himself to the Pharisees who would eventually lead the cause in plotting his death. You see, presence, being with other people, is a gift, a precious gift. And I hope we don't ever take that for granted. Whether family, roommates, this community, people in your community groups, I hope we're always grateful and humble that God has blessed us in such practical ways through all the relationships where we're sharpened, where we're encouraged, where we experience little glimpses of what awaits us in the age to come. And when you understand this, when you understand that Jesus is standing there in the middle of the room offering himself to the Pharisees, you realize that this is what the gospel, the Christian gospel, is all about. It begins with incarnation, where Jesus comes to dwell with us, that he takes on human flesh and takes on permanent residence down the street from many of these people who would look past him, overlook him, and eventually hand him over. And he makes himself present. He makes himself available. He engages in conversation. He listens. And in small, everyday ways, he offers himself to the very people that he's with. And Paul picks up on this to say that this is really God's demonstration of his love for us. That while we were still sinners, that he came down, took on flesh, and he lived with us. And by doing so, he pictured the love of God. And eventually Christ would show the full extent of God's love on the cross for us, where his arms were stretched to welcome and embrace all manner of people. You see, the cross really is the ultimate act of hospitality, where Christ humbled himself and gave all of himself to the least of these, you and I. Second, Jesus offered himself and modeled hospitality through his words. 
the parable in verses 7 through 11 is not a lesson on how to beat the system through false humility. Therefore, go and take the least seat and wait until you're honored 30 minutes in. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, he's giving them a lesson on humility. Verse 11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here they are, jockeying for the best seat in the house. And Jesus says, no, that pride that causes you to fight for recognition, for notoriety, is going to eventually kill you. But in order for you to enter into the kingdom of God, you need to humble yourself and let God exalt you. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, through his presence and through his word, Jesus is speaking life into them. He is trying to offer hope, one better than deceits can offer him. Recognition, acknowledgement, reward, much greater than the ones these Pharisees could work for. And that is the recognition, the approval, and the reward from God. So what does it mean for us practically? Notice Jesus does not say after healing this person with dropsy and seeing the skirmish going on, hey, what are you doing? Did you just see me perform a miracle? If anyone deserves the best seat in the house, it's me. Have you performed a miracle lately? That's what I thought. Now Jesus doesn't say move over because that seat belongs to me. Rather, he turns to the hosts and he asks, where are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? Where are those in the margins? Where are those who we would consider the invisibles in our community? You see, Jesus does not say, therefore, you need to return that favor to me, to exalt me, to give me that seat. Rather, he says, no, you need to expand your circle and pull up chairs, even for the least of these. You see, limiting our guest list or our circle of friends only to those who can repay us, those in positions of power and privilege, is missing the very heart of the gospel. What I believe Jesus is saying is this. Our relationships, the circle of friends we form and we pour into and we invest in, says a whole lot about our understanding of the gospel. If we really understood the gospel, Jesus says, you wouldn't simply pull a seat for me, but you would make plenty of room for those in the margins for those who could not repay you. Matthew 25, verses 35 to 40 says, basically, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was naked, when I was imprisoned, you came and you did it for me. And the disciples asked, Jesus, when were you ever hungry, thirsty, naked, imprisoned? And he in turn says, if you have done it to the least of these, you've done it for me. You see, this is what God wants us to understand as we think about being a community. What we do here on Sundays is great. I love this. I'm proud to call this my church. 
But I would love for us to be more intentional and missional about getting out there in the streets to take the very DNA of this church and to apply it to the relationships. I've been on the receiving end of your hospitality. And you guys have been so gracious. My wife and I, we say the first two, three, four years of our time here, really, this has been the bright spot. We love being in this community. I wonder if we could dream together of what it would be like if we could take this and lean into relationships at our workplace and, and with our roommates, people on the streets, to love them, to care for them as we do one another. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to do. So practically, can I challenge you a couple of things? Invite someone, someone very different from you, someone you've never had a meaningful conversation with, to your house. Have a meal with them. You would be surprised. And before long, you'll realize that you have a lot more in common than you think. And love begins to grow. And when that happens, your prayer is enriched. Have you tried praying for someone you don't care much about? But when you're entangled and you're drawn to each other, your prayers sound different. And of course you can follow up. How are things going? We have been praying for you. How else can I pray for you? That's beautiful. That's what it means to be community. So invite someone to your home. CGs, community groups. I know we don't do service very well, right? We don't. Let's, let's be honest. We don't. Okay? We try. I know some of you do better than others. But really, can you, in this coming year, think creatively about opening your, your house to invite people into your community, people in your neighborhood, but not waiting for them to step into your house, but how can you actually take what you do and take it out there? And really see that as essential to the gospel. We wouldn't skip Bible study for months and say, yeah, this is a great community group. No, somehow we think studying the word is important, and it is. But why not service? Why not being hospitable? Why not saying, hey, my name is. I've seen you around. I know, that could seem really creepy if you don't do it in the right context. But you know what I mean, right? And I would say, lastly, practically, let's welcome each other in the pews. I know it's really awkward, right, when you come to church, unless you really know the people. Like, we're very territorial. Like, I see the same faces in the same little, like, area every week. But what would it look like for you to actually sit somewhere different? Whoa, right? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, pastor, you're, that's too much. No, but seriously, what would it look like for us to sit intentionally, missionally, different places to welcome people? And I know, you know, the introverts, I, I get it, it's hard. Like you just, the moment like Andrew or myself, we come up and we say, hey, uh, let's greet one another. You're like, oh my gosh, 
all of a sudden I need to go to the bathroom right now, right? And I know some of you, you time it so you go to the bathroom. I know you, okay? Because I see you in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> but I think this is important. As we, as we think about welcoming people, as we think about it being a hospitable community, I think that's one way that we can extend kindness to the people in our church. Okay? To get to know people. I know, it's scary for some of you. I get it. But it's a command. Okay? It's a command, and he calls us to do this. Okay, let's tie all this up with our second point. So we looked at hospitality. How do we do it? How do we do hospitality? The motive for hospitality. Jesus, in verse 12, begins by saying, He said also to the man who had invited him, now speaking to the host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. It's a beatitude. True happiness is tied to hospitality because they cannot repay you. What? That doesn't add up. And then Jesus says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus in the gospel often calls us to a greater motive than earthly rewards. Jesus is not against rewards. He's for greatest reward. That's why he will often say, don't do these things and get recognition from others, but do it and get God's recognition. His recognition is far more important and meaningful than others. So Jesus appeals to these things, and he does it here. He says, look, don't throw these parties and banquets And only invite those who could repay you, but invite all. And God who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This does not mean that we can never have a Thanksgiving meal just with our family and close friends. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying, are you mindful? Are you cognizant? Are you intentional about inviting, pulling up a seat to those who you would otherwise not. And Jesus, this is what he does for us. The charge that he gives to the host is the very thing Jesus does with us. Jesus doesn't simply say, come unto me, all you who are weak and weary and find rest. Okay, I'm glad you're in, but stay at a distance. No, he says, come, come. And he gives us his seat. And he pours glory upon us. This is the gospel that Christ regularly reaches out to us even when we don't feel like coming. And he says, come on and feast at my table. Eat of rich food and drink deeply with a cup of joy. Be nourished, be strengthened. 
come alive again in your heart. So that you don't simply go out and do these things out of duty and check them off, but they become the very lifeline, the things that excite you, things that, of course, this is what Christ has done for us. Surely, it is my great privilege and honor to mirror Christ in his hospitality by inviting someone over for a meal. And this is a challenge for all of us as we think about practicing hospitality, that we don't simply go out and start making a guest list of all the people we don't want to invite. That's important, but it's got to start right here. Let Christ serve you. Eat of the rich grace that he extends to you in his word and drink deeply of his spirit in prayer. Come and be encouraged in this worship service, speaking words of hope and encouraging one another through psalms and spiritual songs, as Paul would say, so that as we leave this place, we not only understand what we're called to do, but we're ready to do it. I think Jesus, when we do that, I think he smiles upon us. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Great is your reward in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you invite us to your table. Even when we have no money. Lord, you lavish us with grace unimaginable. And perhaps the reason why we struggle to be hospitable is because we have not yet tasted the riches of your hospitality. Pray that you would teach us as your people to receive, to be served, and to feast on Christ. Even now we ask, in Christ's name, amen.